All right, this morning we're going to start by looking at the very first words in the book of Ecclesiastes. It says, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time came. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. That's how the book of Ecclesiastes opens. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't really seem like it's filled like a lot of hope. This is a book that's in the Old Testament that's supposed to be what's known as wisdom literature. It teaches us things. It teaches us how to be wise, how to make good decisions, how to follow God. But it starts with a sentence that doesn't seem like it really pulls the punch at all, and it's telling us that everything's absolutely meaningless. And aside from the fact that that's included in wisdom literature, I think it tells us a lot about our human condition today because there are words in there that probably most, if not all of us in this room, really identify with, especially where it says, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? I don't know about you, but I felt like that so many times in my life where I'm stuck on that hamster wheel, right? And I'm going and I'm going and I'm getting up in the morning and I'm doing what I do every single day and it feels like I turn around and a whole year has passed. And I'm not any further ahead than I was because I'm stuck on that hamster wheel. But then, throughout Ecclesiastes, we see this picture painted through the words, right? It's describing a world that's constantly in motion, right? It never really seems to change. The work is never done. It says, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. And we see that throughout humanity, right? We are caught as individuals, as a world, in a never-ending cycle. It is wash, rinse, repeat, Now, last week, Ryan talked about part of that cycle, um, a part we played again over and over throughout the Old Testament, the cycle of vengeance, people wanting violence, people wanting revenge for the things that were done to them. But we know that the cycle of vengeance is absolutely in no way limited to stories in the Old Testament. It's not limited to stories in the Bible. It's not limited to Christianity. 
We look around our world, turn on the news, right? And it's nation pitted against nation. It's religion pitted against religion. But we see that cycle of vengeance in our own lives too. I mean, you say, somebody hurts me, I want to get them back right. Or even better yet, especially you mama bears in the room, somebody hurts my family, somebody hurts somebody I care about, all bets are off, right? I want to get even for that. Truly, there is nothing new under the sun. So what does that mean for us today? We see it in the Bible. We see it in our world. We see it in our lives. Do we just resign ourselves and say, yep, it's a cycle. It's never ending. This is where we're at. This is where we're going to be. Or do we find a way to break that cycle? How do we find hope and a belief that that cycle can ever be broken? And the Israelites in the Old Testament were some people in desperate need of hope, okay? They had spent years in slavery, years in the wilderness, traveling to the promised land. They get the promised land, they conquer it, and then they end up being exiled from their promised land. They're picked up and plunked down in foreign lands, surrounded by all sorts of things that aren't in line with their way of life and their way of thinking, They brought much of their suffering upon themselves because try as they might, they couldn't break the cycles they were stuck in. Now, in the time before, during, and after that exile period, when the Israelites were taken away from their homes, there were a group of individuals known as prophets. These prophets, um, they lived in all different areas. They were in all these different time frames. And depending on who they were speaking to and when they were speaking and delivering God's message, um, what they were actually communicating, communicating varied a little bit. But you see repeatedly throughout all the books of the prophets, there's a lot of woe to statements. They're delivering a lot of dire messages, which is basically Israelites, change your ways, Quit doing all this stuff you're not supposed to be doing, or bad things are going to happen. They issue the woe-to statements to nations around the Israelites, too. It wasn't just exclusive to the Israelites. And these welcome or these warnings were usually pretty dire and very unwelcome. Now, Isaiah is probably one of the best-known prophets. Um, the book of Isaiah is the longest of all of the books of the prophets. And in all the chapters, the first two-thirds of it are filled with those woe-to statements. Woe to Israel, woe to the neighbors. Very kind of doomsday stuff, trying to get them to straighten up their act. But they were stuck in these cycles. They were trying to make all these bargains. They weren't relying on God to protect them as a nation. Instead, they're trying to make these alliances with other neighbors who, guess what, didn't work out so well for them. They're worshiping idols. They're greedy. They're not following God. And Isaiah was there to tell them it wasn't going to be tolerated much longer. But after two-thirds of some pretty dire stuff, in chapter 40, we turn a sharp corner. Isaiah 40 starts with this. Comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. 
Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God wanted his people to know that there was hope. And that message of hope was important before the exile because they're getting all these warnings that this is going to happen. But God wanted to know up front that they were ultimately not going to be left in that place of exile. They definitely needed that reassurance and that hope during the exile because here they are surrounded by strangers, removed from their homeland. They're being tempted by all of these different gods that are being worshipped around them. And God wanted them to remain strong. They needed the hope after the exile because after all this that they'd been through, when they finally were able to come back to their homes and they thought everything was going to be different and life was going to be great and now that cycle was going to be broken, they found that the cycle still wasn't broken. And they needed hope that somewhere down the road things were going to change. The hope, explained by several of the Old Testament prophets, often told of a coming Messiah, a coming king, of one who would finally break that cycle once and for all. My fault. So we look at the scriptures, and there's this thread that shows up. We see it in Isaiah, we see it in these different places of this thread of this Messiah, this hope. And and where we stand today, we look back and we begin to see these places, but this had been throughout the scriptures and people had begun to see this. So they're looking over and over and over again for this, desperately searching for a Messiah. And think about the things that they desired. They desired a Messiah who would make things right, who would restore their world, who would bring justice. That's some of the language you hear that was so desperately needed. Once for all, They were looking for a Messiah who would bring a a revenge on their enemies, who oppressed them over and over and over again. And so there's kind of this hole, this void, this place that's kind of welling up of these people calling out, when are we going to find this Messiah who's going to make things right, who's going to correct things, who's going to set things the way that they're supposed to go, especially how they understood it. Now listen again to the language. Listen to what I said there, that they were looking for a Messiah who would bring justice, who would make things right, who would restore their kingdom and their world, who would take revenge upon their enemies who oppressed them over and over again. This is the person that these people were looking for. And into this void, we discover an ancient story. We see an ancient story found a couple generations just before Jesus. Now, this story is found in the pages of history, but it's also found in a very interesting set of books. And we call those books the Apocrypha, or we call them Deuterocanonical books. Deuterocanonical. Man, say that five times fast with me, would you? These books are fascinating, fascinating books. Now, in the Protestant church, these are not books that we are incredibly familiar with. In our 66 books found in our scriptures, these don't exist. If you go to the Eastern Orthodox Church, if you go to the Roman Catholic Church, you will find these books between the Old and the New Testament. 
Now, they're not seen at the same plane, at the same level as the 66 books of Scripture that we consider canon, that we consider inspired, that we preach from, that we teach from, that we see this thread through God speaking, okay? But these books exist in a way to help us to understand, to set the table for Jesus. And this matters because what happens in these stories, in between the places in the Old and the New Testament, sets everything that we find in Jesus. And that is where we find this story. And as you're going to find, that this story is incredible. It, it, it tells the story of someone who the people thought was the Messiah and helps us to understand even more who Jesus is and why there was so much tension when Jesus began to preach and to teach. Because the Messiah that they were looking for, the Messiah that they were seeking, is not what they saw in Jesus. But what they first saw was someone who they thought was their Messiah. Now this story is found in a book called the book of, Mac- of Maccabees. It begins with the, with the words of a dying Jewish priest... His name is Mattathias. Now, at the time, the Jews were oppressed. Again, they're always being oppressed. This is the story. This is the vengeance cycle that Suzanne told us all about. That they, they are enslaved. They gain their freedom. They conquer. They get their vengeance. They're enslaved and oppressed. They get their freedom. They conquer their enemies, they get enslaved. I mean, it just goes over and over again. It just continues to repeat over and over and over. So again, we find the Jewish people once again oppressed. We shouldn't be surprised. This time they're being oppressed by a Greek king named Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, a revolt was started. Mattathias was killed, I'm sorry, killed someone for offering a sacrifice to a Greek god. So I want you to imagine the scene. I want you to imagine what's going on. These oppressed people, okay? They have their God that they follow, that they understand. They have the oppressors who are oppressing them. Those oppressors have their gods that they follow. And someone offers a sacrifice to this Greek God. And Mathesias says, that's it. No, I'm not putting up with it anymore. And he kind of gets his own vengeance. He gets his own revenge. He puts things in his own hands. And he says, okay, this isn't going to happen. Well, of course, he's arrested. He's put on trial. And he's put to death for his crime. I want you to hear what this priest, Mattathias, said to his sons. As he's on trial for this crime, for killing this person who is sacrificing to the Greek gods, he looks at his sons. In the time of his death, and he simply says, avenge the wrong done to your people. Pay back the Gentiles, in this case, the Greeks, the non-Jews who are, who are oppressing us. Pay them back in full. It's an incredible prayer of vengeance. Now, I want you to notice this because we talked about this last week. We learned last week that prayers like this aren't bad. When they're confessions of anger that are prayed and spoken to God as words of confession, 
for the darkness and the thoughts that are inside our hearts, these prayers matter. There is a spirituality to saying to God, I have been hurt. Someone has hurt me. I feel angry about it. I'm bitter. I'm resentful. Some of the things that I wish upon them, I wouldn't tell anybody else. But sometimes we do, don't we? We speak those words out loud to other people. What we found in the Psalms was that God says, no, 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 no. That's not the way this needs to be done. When you have thoughts like that, when you have pain like that, when you have resentment, when you have hurt like that, it is okay. As long as you are sharing those words to the right person, the only person who can actually heal your heart. And so we find a prayer like this. We say, Lord, I am angry. I wish that you would avenge what has been done to me. You know, in those moments, so many different things happen. I began to recognize this this week as I took that prayer that we learned last week and I said, I'm going to use this as a spiritual discipline. I'm going to begin to take those things to God. And what I realized was, number one, how petty am I at times? Number two, why do I seek revenge on so many other people? Why do I think it's my job and my responsibility? But ultimately what I discover in those prayers is a prayer of healing. I need to get that stuff out of the inside And the only person who can take it, erase it, get rid of it, convict it, confess, help me to share that, is God. But do you see what this priest does? Mathathias doesn't doesn't offer this prayer to God. It doesn't restore and cleanse and heal anything. He looks at his sons and he says, sons... I want you to keep this vengeance going. I want you to continue the cycle. I don't want you to break the cycle. I want you to break the people who hurt us. His words, avenge. Avenge the wrong done to your people. Pay back the Gentiles in full. Imagine this man on his deathbed looking at you. And you're his son and he looks at you with those dying eyes and said, do this for me. What son or daughter doesn't go? Yes, sir. And that's exactly what happens. Mattathias' third son, Judah Maccabee, took hold of the words of his father, and he became leader of a revolt in Jerusalem and the surrounding area, a war against his enemies. I, you should seriously look this guy up. He was a brilliant strategist. He became a war hero. His name actually means, get this, Maccabees means, the hammer of God. And people began to refer to him as the hammer of God as he brought war to Israel's enemies. He defeated their enemies. He set up a kingdom of justice, vengeance, and peace. Victoriously making his way into Jerusalem, the crowds cheering for the Messiah, the king who showed up. I want you to imagine for a few moments, because this is hard for us to imagine if we've never heard this story. Just a couple generations before Jesus, imagine the people chanting out, the hammer of God, the hammer of God, the hammer of God, right? Can you hear the crowds? Everybody's riled up. The pictures are awesome. I mean, this dude, 
we need more movies about this story, I'm telling you right now. There are pictures of him on these elephants riding and crushing these people. You can imagine, can't you, the crowds? The hammer of God has come. How do you think the story turned out? We don't really tell this story, do we? Suzanne and I talked about this, and we said, this is a story we don't even hear about very often. Why not? This is incredible. Well, in 63 BC, everything fell apart. The Maccabees ended up making all sorts of deals with the Romans. They sold out their people. They turned into kings who were just a mess, just like the kings before them. Is anybody surprised that the continued and continued and continued and continued? It reminded me of Animal Farm, where the pigs just become the next humans. The old boss, right? The new boss is the same as the old boss, over and over and over again, right? And that's exactly what happens here. These people begin to look around and they say, well, maybe, maybe, maybe Judah, Maccabees, maybe the hammer of God, maybe he was just the prototype. Maybe he was the picture of what we were supposed to have, but maybe the real one hasn't come yet. Let's continue to look for the Messiah who's going to take up this mantle from the hammer of God and deliver the final blow. He's going to be the one to set the kingdom up. He's going to be the one who's going to make this all right. Now here's what's crazy. This is, this is so cool to me. Jude Maccabees, everything falls apart. We begin to see all these different groups within Judaism looking for a different Messiah. Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes. We look at these people and we say, what, what are they looking for? Who are they seeking? We've talked about all these different groups and they're just desperately searching for another hammer of God. Someone who's going to set things right. And then Jesus shows up. And see, Jesus, people begin to look and they say, now listen to his teaching. Look at the way he's talking. Look at the things that he's doing. He's talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about bringing God's kingdom into this world. He's talking about setting things right. He's talking about making it the way that it's supposed to be. And people look at him and they begin to say, maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the one who's going to do what the Maccabees failed to do. Maybe he will set things the way that they're supposed to go. And they begin to listen to his language. They begin to hear what he has to say. They begin to twist his words and shift stuff and move stuff and say, okay, maybe this is it. Jesus, what does he do? He goes riding into Jerusalem and the people are cheering and calling out. And I don't want to get too far ahead of where we're going in the next couple weeks. But they turn, don't they? They shift. They say, we thought you were the Messiah and you weren't. Why? Why'd they turn on Jesus? Listen to Jesus' words. Listen how different these words are than the hammer of God. Luke 6. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from who you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to repay in full. But, now here, but love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. 
be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Now, Jesus said a lot, a lot of things. But we see his disciples after his death, after his resurrection, writing down the things that are at the essence of who Jesus was. You almost wonder, did the people miss it? Did they miss these words? How, how often do we miss these words? Love your enemies. That doesn't sound like the hammer of God. But Jesus wasn't the hammer of God, was he? He was the lamb of God. Jesus gives a very different of the vision of the future than the hammer of God. Jesus, the lamb of God, gives a vision for a future that isn't easy for any of us. In this vision of this future, we don't repay and get revenge for those who deserve it. We love those who harmed us. We do good to them and pray for them and offer forgiveness to them. Because as Jesus says, this is what it looks like to be in the image of God. So that picture of the future that Ryan describes from Luke is that future that we're all searching for, that people for thousands of years have been searching for this place where the kingdom of heaven is fully realized here on earth, where there's no pain, there's no suffering. The cycle of vengeance has been broken, but not just the cycle of vengeance, all the cycles that we are stuck in have been broken. But people have been trying to define what that future looks like since Jesus' time, but long before Jesus' time. And if we go back to the book of Isaiah, we see what I think is one of the most beautiful pictures of that future painted for us, written hundreds of years before Jesus was alive on earth. It's Isaiah 9, 5 through 7. It says, Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, you've probably heard verses 6 and 7 from that before. We hear it a lot at Christmas time. I know I've sung songs in church that use a lot of those words. But verse 5 may be a little unfamiliar to you. Now, I don't know if it's because words like boot and blood and burning and all of that don't really mesh with the nice warm and fuzzy message we like to hear about at Christmas time. But I think that slicing that verse off is a huge disservice. Now I have to tell you that when we were working on this sermon, I just put that verse in there and Ryan actually had to stop me and say, whoa, you're including that verse? I'm like, well, of course I am. I mean, it makes perfect sense with what we're talking about. I didn't realize, not having grown up in church, not having been around places other than Southeast a whole terrible much, that verse 5 
isn't just left off because it doesn't mesh with a nice Christmas message, but a lot of people just avoid it because it's one they don't want to touch. I started to put in the sermon, you know, most of the time this gets avoided, and Ryan stopped me and said, it's not most of the time, it's all of the time. We say verse 6 and we say verse 7, but we don't dive into verse 5, which blows my mind because that verse is so important to the part. Because it says, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. It's telling us that Jesus, our Messiah, is going to be the one that helps us accomplish that. Isaiah foretold the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. The prince of peace in a kingdom where justice and righteousness are permanent. Where the cycle of vengeance has been stopped once and for all. It's a kingdom where the warrior's boot no longer has a purpose. It no longer has a purpose in the world and it no longer has a purpose in our own lives. Now we know that those prophecies now pointed to Jesus as the Messiah. So we can look and we can say, okay, Jesus came. The Prince of Peace came. But why hasn't that cycle been broken? Where is that kingdom? Why is there still suffering? Why is this still hurt? Why are we still stuck in the cycle of vengeance? Where is that kingdom? And that kingdom is waiting on us. It's waiting on us to follow the example of Jesus. But we're still stuck on that hamster wheel. Following Jesus, really following Jesus. Sometimes we don't want to do it. We want to just be a fan because following Jesus and turning our lives upside down feels too hard. It's too big. It's too much for us to swallow altogether. We decide to be a fan instead of a follower because in some ways we are still more comfortable with the concept of Judah the hammer, the you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back, that feels better to us than Jesus the lamb as the Messiah. So what you have to decide is which Messiah are you going to follow. It's, it's so crazy to think that we have this picture that we ignore so often of this Judah the hammer on his elephant crushing his enemies. It feels so foreign, so distant from us. But, you know, I think for all of us, we choose our Messiah every day. We, we choose what Messiah we're going to follow. We look at the things that are done to us, the things that happen, and we pick the hope for the future that we want to have. And so if we choose the Messiah of Judah the hammer, and we choose the Messiah who gets vengeance. We choose the Messiah of hate. We choose the Messiah that hurts anybody who has hurt us. Our vision for the future continues to look like that cycle over and over and over again. It starts with you and me. It starts with our community. It extends to our city, to our world, to our entire globe. It's why we're in the mess that we are in in our world today. Because Christians continue to choose the wrong Messiah. The picture of the Messiah couldn't be any clearer in these scriptures. That Jesus, the Lamb of God, says, choose me. 
Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. I want to give you a hope and a vision for a future you cannot begin to imagine. A place where the rugged places are made like plains. What an incredible picture. And it starts here. It starts with us. When we choose Jesus, the Lamb of God, in our individual lives, in the relationships that we have with the people that we love and the people who hurt us, and we offer forgiveness to those around us, we call forth a hope and a vision for a future of forgiveness that changes the world in our lives, in our workplaces, in our families, in our relationships, in our community, in our city, in our state, in our country, in our world, and that's the kind of people that we are supposed to be. This is what I mean when I say let's stop playing church. It is an absolute call to conviction. We have got to stop choosing Judah the hammer, the false Messiah. We, we have got to put our hope in Jesus Christ as the only one who brings us hope for this future, who teaches us love each other, love each other. And by that, they will know who you are because you love each other, but added to that and love your enemies. That is a powerful, powerful picture. And it's a decision each and one of us has to choose. Which Messiah will we choose? Let's pray. God, we thank you for stories, God, that we find in Scripture, for words that we find in Scripture. But God, God, but we also thank you that, that we find these places that you have moved throughout history. And places, God, where we can look and we can say, what are we going to do? What kind of people are we going to be? Who are we going to choose to follow? God, I ask that each and every one of us will take an account of our lives, begin to ask seriously, which Messiah are we following? God, help us to have the discipline this week to look in every situation to simply ask, who's my Messiah? Who do I put my hope? Who do I put my trust in? God, help us to change our lives. God, help to continue to teach us what forgiveness looks like. God, because it is the only hope for this world. It is the only hope for our lives. It is the only hope for our families. It's the only hope for our world. God, change our hearts. God, help us to have conversations in our families this week. Give us the opportunities to teach our kids what forgiveness looks like. Help them to break the cycle, to put their trust in you. Help us to show them who Jesus really is. God, we love you. We thank you for worship today. God, we thank you for everything that you have done for us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.